Well, that is a great lead into where we're going today. Um, But I want to begin this way. Um, I looked up several lists of the most common fears or phobias that people deal with. And the lists vary, depend on who created that list, who came up with it. So I derived a, a top ten from a kind of combining some of these lists. You may be able to relate to some of these. Um, and they all have interesting names. Uh, Atikophobia. Know what that one is? It's the fear of failure. Thanatophobia, that's the fear of death. Nosophobia is the fear of developing a disease. I think that one may have been pretty prevalent here in the last few years. Arachnophobia, fear of spiders. I don't get that, but people are afraid of them. Apparently, I don't know. I was the, I was the spider saver at my house, but anyway... Claustrophobia, I think most of, them, most of us are fear, uh, familiar with that term. It's a fear of enclosed spaces. Acrophobia is the fear of heights. I didn't used to have that. You know, I could call, crawl to the top of trees. It didn't bother me. And now, I don't know, I'm a, I'm chicken when it comes to those things. Uh, maybe it's because I don't recover as quickly from... The damage that comes when you fall, yeah. Uh, aerophobia. Aerophobia. Fear of flying. Um, ophidiophobia. That's the fear of snakes. Astrophobia is the fear of thunder and lightning. Trypanophobia. Some of us have this one. That's the fear of injections. Now, yeah, who's afraid of those? Now, there's one more that I would add to this list. Um, it'd be, I guess, the top ele- included in what would be the top 11. And I think this one is more specific to and maybe fairly common among Christians. And I've never seen it really listed, but I would call it evangelophobia. The fear of evangelism. Evangelism. You know, I think for many of us, that word can cause a little bit of trepidation. The Bible tells us that it's one of the spiritual gifts. um, And one spiritual gift inventory defines it this way. Those with the gift of evangelism lead others to Christ effectively and enthusiastically. They have a deep concern for those who do not know Christ. They are good at building relational bridges with non-believers and seem to have a sense when a person is open to Christ's message of forgiveness. And then another definition of that gift adds this. The gift is a practical gift. While the task of evangelism is an important spiritual exercise that all Christians should be involved with, God gifts certain individuals or members with an ability to have an unusual sensitivity to when someone is ready to accept Christ and will generally have greater success in leading people to Christ than other Christians. Um, and I've known some people that were 
that apparently, it was apparent to me, had the gift of evangelism. Now we know there are evangelists. There are evangelists in the Church of the Nazarene. Um, I would certainly say that those people have the gift, but I've known lay people who have had that gift too. And there are people in my mind who are, first of all, the, the first definition talked about they're good at building relational bridges with people. And what I see them really good at is being able to turn conversations towards spiritual things. They're good at that. And then that can lead in a direction. It may not always happen on the spot, but as they develop those relationships and cultivate them, they often have an opportunity then to, to share the gospel and maybe lead people to Jesus Christ. So are all Christians evangelists? Well, I would say that Many of the Christians I have known and pastored over the years do not feel like evangelists. Um, but are all Christians to be evangelistic? I think so. Paul affirms, um, the Apostle Paul affirms the gifting of the evangelists in, in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 and 12 where he writes this, so, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. I think it's interesting what he says here is the job of the evangelists and the others mentioned in this list. Now, you would think that an evangelist would be committed to sharing the gospel with as many people in as many circumstances as possible. And that is not to say that that wouldn't be included in the job description of one who has the gift of evangelism. But in this passage, Paul says that the responsibility of the evangelist and the others mentioned here is to prepare God's people for works of service. In other words, the job of the evangelist, according to this passage of Scripture, is to equip those who do not have the gift of evangelism to be evangelistic. And all the people roared, Amen. I think Paul clearly puts himself in the category of an evangelist. But in his writing, he, he, he indicates that all believers are to be evangelistic in orientation. They may not have the gift of evangelism, but they're to be evangelistic in orient, orientation. Here, listen to what he says in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. He writes, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too. Paul and his team, that God may open a door for our message. This is an evangelist talking here. We want God to open the door for our message so that we may, may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Now he's speaking more directly to the Colossians here. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. 
Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer everyone. 1 Peter 3.15 But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. There's a, there's a common phrase here. In Colossians he says, Know how to answer everyone. In 1 Peter 3.15 he says, Be prepared to give an answer to everyone. We're to be able to answer for the reason, for the hope that we have. So it, it is clear from Scripture that not all Christians have the gift of evangelism, but we are all called to be evangelistic. You know, I was at a seminar um, one time for, for pastors, and the pastor that was speaking was saying that his brother had the gift of evangelism. He said, when my brother preaches an evangelistic message, all he has to do is sneeze and people will flock to the altar. He said, when I preach an evangelistic message, I don't have those same kinds of results. Um, And some might say, you know, Pastor, if I don't have the gift of evangelism, how can I be evangelistic? Well, one of the ways we can do that is uh, by what author Michael Frost in his book called Surprise the World, he, he says we need to live questionable lives. And somebody say, questionable lives? Well, I mean questionable in a good sense of the word. And, and this book, uh, this is a book that the district superintendent said, hey, you guys should read. So I did. And, um, so the, the idea for this kind of came out of my reading of, of that book. Um, I want to share with you, uh, the King James version of 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. Because the wording is, is, uh, interesting here. It says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. I don't want to be peculiar. Let me me read to you what uh, the commentaries, uh, a commentary says about this. That phrase, a peculiar people, in the Greek means a people for a possession. That is, as pertaining to God. They are a people which he has secured as a possession or as his own. A people, therefore, which belong to him and to no other. In this sense, they are special as being his. And being such, it may be inferred that they should be special in the sense of being unlike others, Unique, peculiar in their manner of life. Under the Roman system of slavery, it was possible for an ambitious slave to gain his freedom. If he had a skill, 
and was determined to work, he could, he could hire himself from his master for so much a day and work for himself. If he was successful, he could accumulate enough savings to buy for himself from his master his freedom. It was by this method, method that some slaves rose to high positions. The money that a slave made over and above what he had to pay his master was called his peculium, and the law protected it as his own private property. This Latin word, then, is the root of the English word peculiar. The word has come to mean in our culture, peculiar means odd or weird or eccentric, but when the King James translators used it, it was in the original meaning of privately owned and acquired property. Something peculiar was the private possession of some person, or in our case, of God. So this was the meaning of the word when Peter calls Christians peculiar people in the King James versions. Now, I must admit that I've run into some Christians who were odd, peculiar, but that's not what Peter is referring to in verse 9, nor what Paul is referring to when he says in Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us, speaking of Jesus, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous for good works, in the sense of we are the possession of God. And because of that, we live differently. Right? That was enthusiastic. <laughs> Maybe I was wrong about that. I don't know. So, Christians are to be distinctly different as being God's own possession, and as such are to conform to the image and plan of Jesus in holiness and service. Um, so, our peculiarity is not about being a, a conglomeration of oddballs promoting a pack of weird or unusual Ideas, although they may seem so to like that to some. There was actually a sect that was organized in 1838 that called themselves the Peculiar People. They took their name from this text in, in uh, Peter. And they practiced being peculiar in the modern sense of the world. A word, excuse me, odd, weird, that kind of thing. Rather than in the biblical sense of God being God's unique possession. And you, you can see how almost anything sometimes can be justified when a word in the scripture is taken out of context or used in a different sense than originally meant, can't you? 
Uh, that's why we can be grateful sometimes for the fact that um, as there are different translations, sometimes we get a better idea of what a particular word means, as in this case with the word peculiar. But think for a moment about the impact that Christians had on the Roman Empire. While evangelists like Peter and Paul were proclaiming the gospel and defending the truth in an age of polytheism and paganism, thousands of ordinary believers were infiltrating Roman society and living the kind of questionable lives that evoked curiosity about the Christian message. They lived in a way unlike that of their secular contemporaries. Uh, Michael Frost in his book says, These ordinary believers devoted themselves to sacrificial acts of kindness. They loved their enemies and forgave their persecutors. They cared for the poor and fed the hungry. In In the brutality of life under Roman rule, They were the most stunningly different people anyone had ever seen. The Emperor Julian, um, 331 to 363 AD, was so concerned about the influence of Christians that Christians were having that he feared they might take over the empire. So to counteract this threat, he gave the following instruction to his officials. He wrote this, We must pay special attention to this point and by this means effect a cure. For when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the priests, he's speaking of his own pagan priests, then I think the impious Galileans, which is what he referred to Christians, that's what he called them, then I think the impious Galileans observed this fact that we're not doing for the poor what we should be and devoted themselves to philanthropy. And they have gained ascendancy in the worst of their deeds through the credit they win for such practices. In other words, the people were starting to look on the Christians with favor. For just as those who entice children with a cake... And by throwing it to them two or three times, induce them to follow them. And then, when they are far away from their friends, cast them on board a ship and sell them as slaves. By the same method, I say, the Galileans also begin with their so-called love feasts or hospitality or service of tables. For they have many ways of carrying it out, and hence call it by many names. And the result is that they have led very many into atheism. Now, you may need to understand that when Julian's talk about atheism, he means that they no longer believe in the pagan gods. That's the kind of atheism that he's speaking of. So Julian was concerned that Christians' acts of kindness and hospitality were winning too many of his subjects. He decided to start a campaign in which his officials and pagan priests were to outlove the Christians. Yeah, laughable, really. He implemented a program of food distribution and had hostels built for poor travelers. So, again, from Julian. 
Why do we not observe that it is, it, it is their benevolence, re, re, referring to the Christians, to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead and the pretended holiness of their lives that have done the most to increase atheism. Again, a lack of belief now in the pagan gods. I believe we ought really and truly to practice every one of these virtues. For it is disgraceful that when the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. So the Christians were doing what the Romans were not. Well, Julian's social program utterly failed. He could not motivate pagan priests and his officials to care that much for the poor. Because why? They didn't have the love of Jesus in their hearts. They couldn't do that. He failed to realize that Christians were filled with the spirit of love and were motivated by God's grace. That's why they did what they did. Class, race, social status, rich, poor, male, female, it didn't matter to these Christians. They welcomed all comers. They proclaimed the mercy of God and they also demonstrated it. Their message that God loved the world was unthinkable to the average Roman as their pagan gods cared nothing for humanity. So it's not hard to understand how in the miserable world of the Roman Empire, the conduct of Christians raised an insatiable curiosity among the average Roman citizen. Paul writes to Titus, in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, 10, exhorting him to teach sound doctrine. And he says this, You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, Teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that when those who oppose you, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching of our of God our savior attractive and that's what was happening in the roman empire they were making the teaching of god attractive and so at the end of all this list of you know you shoulds or the should nots paul states the reason for this list of rules when Christians live this way, 
It makes the teaching of God more attractive. This was Paul's recipe for a questionable life in his time and culture. The very things he listed here. It was countercultural to live this way. So, that's what worked in Paul's day. The challenge for us is to find what questionable lives look like in the world we inhabit. What do questionable lives look like in the world we inhabit? Now, I'm not sure that we can't glean some things from this passage in Titus that I've just read to you. And I'm confident that Paul's advice to the church at Rome would be just as countercultural today as it was then. Let me share with you from Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. By the way, you have to do all those things with the right motive. If you're, uh, if you're kind to enemy, ju- your enemy just in order to heap burning coals on his head, it's probably not the right reason for being kind to your enemy. So if we want to know what it means to live questionable lives, and here, here Paul, I think, has given a pretty good list of things that are countercultural, but uh, I would also recommend reading the Gospels. Look at Jesus and how he spent his time and who he spent it with. You know, I just, I, I think sometimes in our world and what we see happening, there are just some people we tend to stiff arm. Don't want anything to do with them. Look at Jesus and how he spent his time and who he spent it with. There's an old communication theory that goes like this. When predictability is high, impact is low. In other words, when the audience thinks they know what you're going to say and you go ahead and say it, impact is low. On the other hand, when an audience is surprised or intrigued, they will think long and hard about what they've heard. The Roman Empire was intrigued, not just by what they said, but how they lived. And I think the same goes for being evangelistic, for Christian outreach. Remember that one of the primary acts of the evangelistic believer 
is the arousal of, of curiosity among unbelievers, leading to questions and faith sharing. In other words, we then are prepared to give an answer for the hope that's within us. Amen? Um, these folks, when we live this kind of life in the world where we live, when we live in a way that's different, when it's peculiar, peculiar because of who owns us, that raises questions in the minds of people. And when that happens, these are our opportunities to be evangelistic. Amen? Now, I, I would... You know, I was a little concerned when I was preparing this today because I didn't want this to, to see as a, to be seen as a, well, now I can dodge my responsibility to be evangelistic. I'm hoping you're understanding and I'm encouraging you to be evangelistic in the way you lived and always prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. That when God opens those doors, we're ready with an answer. Amen? Amen. Father, thank You for the truth of Scripture and the guidance it gives us. Lord God, in these passages that Peter wrote and Paul wrote, we need to be people ready with an answer and living lives that are different enough, peculiar enough, as your very own possession, that people's curiosity will lead them to say, why are you like that? Why, why do you do that? What motivates you? Whatever those questions may be. And then we, realizing this as an evangelistic opportunity, will be ready with an answer because we know it's all about Jesus. It's all about what He's done for us. It's all about what He can do for them. Lord God, I pray today that this will motivate us more than ever to be ready when those opportunities arise as we interact with our friends, with our neighbors, with our co-workers, maybe with even family members who look at our lives that see we live in a way that's countercultural, just like those Christians in ancient Rome did. And people observed that. And they saw how different it was. And they wanted to know why. And may, they'd ask, may they ask that about us too as we live those questionable lives before them. And then, Father, you create opportunities for us to share the good news of the gospel with them. May we be faithful when you open those doors for us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.